Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Reading from John 19, 1 to 16. This is the trial of Jesus. Pilate then took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and put a purple robe on him. And they began to come up to him and say, Hail, King of the Jews, and to give him slaps in the face. Pilate came out again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing him out to you, so that you may know that I find no guilt in him. Jesus then came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, Behold the man. So when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify, crucify. Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered him, We have a law, and by that law he ought to die because he made himself out to be the Son of God. Therefore, when Pilate heard this statement, he was even more afraid. And he entered into the praetorium again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You do not speak to me. Do you not know that I have authority to release you? And I have authority to crucify you. Jesus answered, You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. For this reason, he who delivered me to you has the greater sin. As a result of this, Pilate made efforts to release him. But the Jews cried out, saying, If you release this man, you are no friend of Caesar. Everyone who makes himself out to be a king opposes Caesar. Therefore, when Pilate heard these words, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the pavement, but in Hebrew, Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. And he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So they cried out, Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priest answered, We have no king but Caesar. So he then handed him over to them to be crucified. I have just read a portion of the trial of Jesus in John. Actually, it takes a longer section than this, even up into chapter 18. And so the trial of Jesus plays a central and extended role in the book. And some even see the entire book as a courtroom scene in which various witnesses are called. And the trial then is a culmination of this kind of ongoing courtroom scene. And it's a trial of cosmic proportions in which God and humankind take turns in the dock. That is, Jesus, God, is on trial. But is it really God on trial, or is it humankind that is on trial? Besides the ambiguity 
uh, about John 19.13, that this section of the trial, when he comes out and seats him in the place of judgment. There is actually a text that says it's Jesus that Pilate sits or seats in the place of judgment. That it's actually Pilate turning over the trial to Jesus. And whether that's true, whether that text is true, there is certainly ambiguity surrounding the role that Jesus is playing, even in the eyes of Pilate, because he pictures him as a king. And of course, at some level, he's mocking him. But then it becomes serious because, well, here's your king. And of course, the role of the king is as true judge. And he's even going to nail the king of the Jews to the cross in three languages. And when the Jews come and say, well, you should have said he claimed to be king of the Jews, Pilate said, what I have written, I have written. And so John is using trial language throughout his gospel. He uses the word witness or testimony some 14 times. This only occurs a couple of times in the synoptics. He will again and again use the word testify. He uses it 33 times. And again, this only occurs a few times in the other Gospels. He's going to use the word judge some 19 times. And the idea even of truth, that he'll talk about the true 14 times, and the trustworthy. And of course, there is a kind of forensic notion of the truth. That the point of this trial is to arrive at the truth, like any good trial. And he pictures John the Baptist as a witness, and he describes the writer himself, you know, or the beloved disciple. He describes as a witness. And so the gospel is framed around this trial as a legal proceeding, and is actually echoing in Isaiah. There is a portion of Isaiah in Isaiah 43 that God is put on trial. That is, God allows himself. He says, okay, let the nations be arrayed against me. Let me be put on trial. And of course, this seems like a kind of fulfillment of that Isaiah passage. That here, you know, Rome is representative of the world. Israel, representative of the Jewish world. And so in Isaiah it says, let all the nations gather together and the peoples assemble. Let them bring in their witnesses to prove they were right so that others may hear and say, oh, it's true. At the same time then, God brings forth Israel. And his key witness in Isaiah is the servant, my servant, whom I have chosen. John is echoing this trial, and actually his gospel is the trial of Isaiah come true. What's the chief thing to be proven in Isaiah or in John? I think it's the identity of, in Isaiah, certainly the identity of God as opposed to the nations. It says, so that you know, in 43.10, may you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. And that language should sound familiar because Jesus is going to say again and again, I am he. It goes on to say, before me no God was formed, 
nor will there be one after me. And so the two words that are used in Isaiah, and then Jesus picks up these two words, that Israel was to know and believe and witness to Yahweh's being. And Jesus says in 8.28 and 8.24, that you may know about me and believe about me, I am he. That is, he's applying this to himself. But he explains that this will come about only when judgment is passed. You will lift up the Son of Man, and only then will you know, I am he. And of course, the picture of the lifting up is the crucifixion, but it's also a picture of the resurrection, the ascension. I think the picture of life and the language is precisely that of the Septuagint, that is the Greek Old Testament. That reference is not lost on his listeners because when Jesus says, I am before Abraham was, they pick up stones in chapter 8 to judge him right there. And so his betrayal, his arrest, his death, you know, we would think, oh, that would be precisely when it would be presumed, this isn't him. It's not, I am. But Jesus says, from now on, I am telling you before it comes to pass, in chapter 13, so that when it does occur, you may believe that I am he. And one of the key places this unfolds, you know, they, they have the Passover supper and Judas goes out to betray him. And then they meet out in the garden of Gethsemane. And Judas comes up and offers him the kiss of betrayal. And Jesus inquires of the soldier, whom do you seek? And they say, Jesus the Nazarene. And he says at this point, I am he. And do you remember what happens? They are literally bowled over. It says that, and when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And so it seems that there is a recognition. Oh, this is I am he. There's a kind of self-evident picture. Oh, this is like a theophany. You know, God's appearing. It's overwhelming to them. The claim in Isaiah, I am he, and the significance of this claim worked out in John. It says in Isaiah that apart from me, there is no savior. There is only one who has revealed and saved and proclaimed. I, God saying about himself, and not some foreign God among you. You know, the picture here, Israel, how you have wearied me with your sins, God says. Still, I, even I, am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. And so the decision being handed down in these two trials, the trial in Isaiah and the trial in John, it's about the nature of reality and truth, you know, who's God, the order of power, you know, who's really in control? Pilate thinks he's in control. Israel thinks they're in control. It's the role of life and death. But ultimately, I think both trials are about salvation. 
In both John and Isaiah, there is a judgment, but this judgment is itself salvific. There's a series of accusations made against Israel. But it ends with a, a word of comfort. The same thing is going to happen in the trial of Jesus. But in Isaiah, God says, Comfort, O comfort my people, says your God. Speak kindly to Jerusalem and call out to her that her warfare has ended, that her iniquity has been removed, that she has received of the Lord's hand double for all her sin. Through Israel, this same invitation in Isaiah is extended in Isaiah 45 to the entire world. Reading from 22 to 23, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God, and there is no other. I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness, and will not turn back that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. And so there is this cosmic salvation. In John, Jesus gives the same kind of assurance. Now, it's also true that this is mixed with harsh condemnations. He describes his purpose as one of judgment. In 939, he says, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see, and that those who see may become blind. This judging works its effect. It delivers from darkness. It casts out the prince of this world. You know, when I am lifted up, the prince of this world will be cast out. It exposes the lie that he is a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. And it, it frees up from this enslaving darkness. The ultimate trust that the people of the world have. It says they have loved darkness. They have an implicit trust in the power of death. You know, that's pictured. Oh, they imagine they can even destroy the Lord of life. And there's actually a first order trust in Moses. That is, they're going to reject Jesus imagining that they're protecting Moses. And on this basis, rejection and presumed judgment of Jesus is rendered. They're going to say, oh, he spoke against Moses. He spoke against the temple. He spoke against the law. And this false judgment that actually is shifted, it becomes God's judgment on the world. But this judgment is also a means of universal salvation. Israel is supposed to be God's witness that I am God. But in Isaiah, so in the trial of Jesus, Israel does not prove trustworthy. In this section that we just read, they actually commit something that seems very close to blasphemy. Because Israel is to have only one king, and that is God. And yet here they say, we have no king but Caesar. They've abandoned God in abandoning Christ. They have put God in the dock in John, just as they have in Isaiah. And so just as Israel sided with the nations against God, God says, your first forefathers sinned and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. 
So I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary, and I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to revilement. Jesus says very harsh things also. He says in 10.8, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. In 10.10, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. In 10.12, he who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. And then, of course, maybe the harshest language is in chapter 8. You are of your father the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own native tongue. He is a liar and the father of lies. And so the characteristics of the truth and judgments of the cosmic order, Jesus is challenging. He says that it's flesh-bound, it's earth-bound, it's reliant on a closed frame of understanding. And according to Jesus, there is a regime of truth in 724. Oh, you're just judging based on appearances. In 815, you're judging based on the flesh. You judge on what is below, and you do not judge from what is above, what is transcendent. And so Jesus counters this system of truth and judgment with the claim, I am he, that he speaks for God, with a word which transcends the world. I am from above. It does not rely on human standards of judgment. I speak what the Father has told me. In cosmic terms, he describes it as light coming into the darkness, as life over and against death or God against humanity. But of course, in a being against humanity, there's also the salvation of humanity. As it says in 331, he who comes from above is above all. He who is of the earth is from the earth and speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. What he has seen and heard of that he testifies and yet no one receives his testimony. And so the problem is not a problem with the law. It's not a problem with Moses, but it's imagining that that's an end in and of itself. It's the problem with this orientation to the earth, to what is of the earth and missing what is transcendent. And the exposure of the lie and the revealing of the truth I think this is the trial. This is what's occurring throughout the life of Christ. But this trial comes to a literal fulfillment in the trial of Jesus. The two regimes of truth, the two modes of power, Rome against Jesus, Israel against Jesus, the two cosmic orders, one is going to kill, one is going to crucify, one is built upon death. And one is built upon life and resurrection. They come into conflict. And a judgment is rendered in the trial and in its aftermath. In Isaiah, 
and here in John. The point of Jesus' confrontation with the power of darkness and death, it's not simply judgment and condemnation, but it's life. He says in 10.10, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. In 5.21, for just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes. And of course the clearest pointers in Isaiah to the trial of Jesus. I gave my back to those who strike me, and my cheek to those who pluck out the beard. I did not cover my face from humiliation and spitting. For the Lord God helps me, therefore I am not disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like flint, and I know that I will not be put to shame in Isaiah 50, 6-7. And of course the picture is the trial of Jesus. And it's the picture of trust in God in the face of death. And this characterizes the servant in Isaiah that's being tried. And it characterizes Jesus who walks into Jerusalem and takes up the cross. Those who condemned him presume, oh, we've destroyed him. We've sealed him up in death. This is from Isaiah chapter 53. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. That is, they picture they've destroyed him. They've annihilated him. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, that's what Pilate, that's what Rome that's what the Jews would do to the Lord of life. God's judgment, though, intervenes to set aside every human judgment. In Isaiah 52, 13, Behold, my servant will prosper. He will be high and lifted up and greatly exalted. God in Christ receives condemnation. He's been put on trial. But in the midst of his death, in both Isaiah and John, in the midst of this trial, you know, the culminating point is the cross of Christ. And in 52.14, at this trial of the servant, we see the picture of divine glory, divine light shining forth. And so in the cosmic trial portrayed in John, Jesus is the agent of God's judgment his claim upon the world. The claim, though, is depicted in terms of God's salvific judgment, which through Jesus as its unique agent, it inaugurates life, eternal life. And so all are called, Jesus says, before the judgment of his word. In 1248, he who rejects me and does not receive my word has one who judges him. The word I spoke is what will judge him at the last day. The call is to believe and know that I am he. And that I am has overcome death. That he is life. This is the picture in 653. And the source of eternal life. In 1250, I know that his commandment is eternal life. Therefore the things I speak, Jesus says... I speak just as the Father has told me. In 663, it is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. 
And so this is judgment. This is the trial. This is the conclusion. Light has broken into the darkness. All are called to the light. All are called to light. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.